If you have your Bibles, will you please open with me to Second Peter, chapter 3. Over the past five weeks, we've been making our way through Second Peter as our brother Doug is away on sabbatical. It's a brief letter, one that can quite easily be read in a short amount of time, and I hope that we've been able to trace some of the themes that we've been learning through Second Peter. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, we learned that because of what has been provided for us in Christ Jesus, we have more than enough to live lives of godliness. We have the scriptures, we have the precious and very great promises of God. And then in verses 12 to 21 of that chapter, Tommy helped us to see that that Peter's primary concern in the book of Peter is, is to help us to remember truth and to stand on that truth. And this truth is like a lantern that is shining in a dark place to which we will do well to pay attention to. That was what we learned about in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, our brother's Stuart and Anton helped us see this, this picture that is being painted of these false teachers and prophets. They are contrasted with the way of truth. Their character was outlined, their blasphemy, and Anton particularly helps us see their temperament and the tragedy that befalls their destructive life. Then last week, Stuart reminded us about the day after tomorrow from the first 13 verses of chapter 3, where Peter writes to wake us up and help us remember that we should always live in light of the day of judgment. Live in light of the new heavens and new earth. Live in light of the fact that the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, will be found out. So what the false teachers are doing and what we are doing will one day be revealed and shown for what it really is. That's what we learned about last week. So I hope we've, we've, we've got the, the sort of trajectory or or the main point of what Peter's been trying to say throughout his book as this morning we try to bring it to a close. So I preached on the first 11 verses. It was my task to open things up, and now it's fallen to me to tie all the loose ends together and finish us off this morning. But in this morning's lesson, which is in verses 14 to 18 of chapter 3, we're really just continuing on with what Stuart preached on last week, living in light of the day of the Lord. And so for that, per- for that reason, let's read the whole chapter whole of Second Peter chapter 3 for context, and then we'll focus on verses 14 to 18. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What do you most fear? What do you most long for? What keeps you up at night? What, what thoughts consume your mind and produce either anxiety or hope in you? And how do those, those fears and those hopes affect the way that you live in the present? I think whether we're aware of it or not, our idea about the future, our idea about our hopes and our fears, they have a huge impact on the way that we live our lives in the present. And 2 Peter 3 verses 14 to 18, our text for this morning, teaches us that an expectation of God's coming judgment, an expectation of the day of Christ, should produce in us godliness, should produce in us holiness, a pursuit of Christ. And of course, we don't know exactly when that judgment will be. It would be convenient if we could just set a date on our calendar, a reminder, and just make sure we're ready for that date. But in fact, Peter says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's unexpected. There is this kind of delay in the return of Christ. And so really what Peter is telling us to do here is he's telling us to expect the unexpected. He's saying expect something which you don't really know when it's going to happen, but you know it's going to happen. It's inevitable. The judgment of the Lord will come and live in light of that truth. Expect the unexpected. Whether the Lord returns tomorrow or returns at the end of your life, live in light of that truth. That's what this text is all about. But now before we delve into this, there's an important note on the topic of eschatology, which I think we need to, we need to make before we can really apply this text. Eschatology sounds like a big fancy word, but it's a word that theologians use to describe the doctrine of the last things or theology that pertains to the return of Christ when all of history is going to be closed and the Lord will come to judge the living and the dead. 
And this passage, as our brother Stuart um, pointed out to us, is, yes, speaking about the return of Christ, but the return of Christ in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. So if, as our brother Stuart taught us from this text, that the new heavens and the new earth was implemented with the destruction of the temple, then can we, can we still apply this text? Is there anything that's still relevant to us? Is there anything to wait for? And the answer is, well, yes, there is. It both, re- it both refers to 70 AD and has a final fulfillment in the coming of Christ at the end of history. Let me just quickly unpack this a little bit. Quickly turn to Isaiah 65, which is a text our brother Stuart took us to last week. Isaiah 65, to understand this phrase, the new heavens and the new earth, because this is what we're waiting for. Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 18. God says through Isaiah in verse 17 there, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. So there's that phrase that Peter is latching on to. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So what is the new heavens and the new earth referring to in Isaiah 65? Is it referring to the physical cosmos as we know it? Or is it referring to a city? Is it referring to a people? Well, at least according to Isaiah 65, the new heavens and the new earth, which God creates, refers to a people. It refers to a new Jerusalem. So in this passage in Isaiah, the the new heavens and a new earth is not referring necessarily to the physical cosmos and the destruction or the dismantling of creation, but is referring to a new state of being for God's people. It refers to a new age in which God relates to his people in a different way way, in a new way. It's an age of God's comfort and love, having defeated the enemies of sin and death. Remember, Isaiah was written to exiles, exiles in Babylon, who were wondering when when God was going to restore his people. And now he's saying, I'm going to set in motion a new order when I'm going to create a new people in Christ Jesus. And this prophecy had a fulfillment in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when that empty, dead religion of Judaism, symbolized in the temple, was finally done away with. When God said, this old covenant is now finally done away with, and this judgment on Israel for crucifying their Messiah is final. The Messiah and his people have been vindicated. So the question then stands, if that's already happened, then what are we still waiting for? I mean, this is important to answer because Peter begins by saying, since you are waiting for these, well, are we waiting for them? We are. In the way that our salvation from sin is definite, we also know that it's not final, is it? Who here is willing to put up their hand and say that they never sin, that they're perfect, that the salvation that God is working in us is finished? don't think anyone wants to say that. We know that God is working in us and working through us to produce salvation. We are saved. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will one day be saved. All right? That's a truth that is important, that is vital for Christians to remember. So while we've been delivered from the power of sin, 
we have yet to be fully delivered from the presence of sin. We live in this sort of in-between state between who we are in Christ and what we will be when Christ returns. God has begun something which has a a final fulfillment when Christ returns. So the Christians in Peter's day would have seen the destruction of the temple as a decisive moment of victory for the lamb who was slain, But we are also aware that we, as God's people, will be ultimately victorious when Christ comes to judge the world and raise us from the dead. So that's how this text is still applicable to us, in that it had a kind of fulfillment in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. But its final, most glorious, consummated fulfillment is when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. So that's what I'm referring to when I say that we must expect the unexpected. I'm not saying that we should expect the destruction of the temple again. I'm saying that we should expect Christ to return and exercise judgment on the world. We are to look for the resurrection and the life of the world to come, and we are to live in light of that truth. And the way that we are to live in light of that truth is by following three actions that Peter outlines for us here. First, we are to pursue holiness— We see this in verses 14 and verses 17. Then second, we are to consider Scripture. We'll see that in verses 15 and 16. And then third, we are to grow in Christ. That's how we are to expect the unexpected. That's how we are to live in light of Christ's return. So first, in verses 14 and 17, we are to pursue holiness. As I've already noted... Peter says there in the beginning, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, since you are expecting this to happen, since you are anticipating something, since you are casting your eyes on the horizon and seeing that God is going to do something in the future, therefore live this way. So he is basing his exhortations and commands in the fact that these Christians are supposed to be expecting something from God. They're supposed to be waiting for something from God. Not in the sense of, yeah, I suppose he'll do something someday, but in the sense of being ready and anticipating what God will do. They are supposed to stand on the promises of God and not follow the sensuality of the false prophets, fixing their eyes on the promises of God. Peter said something similar just a few verses earlier in verses 11 and 12, for example, where he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So already in this text, we're familiar with this idea of us expecting something, us waiting for something, and that affecting the way that we live in the present. Peter isn't just saying, have a good eschatology, have a good view of the end times. He's saying, allow that view of the end times to influence the way you live in the present. Peter is linking their understanding of the future to how they should be living in the present. And he is telling them to pursue holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness. He says that they must be diligent to be found by God in a certain way. That's, that's the, the exhortation, the command he gives, to be diligent. This is a word he used in chapter 1 as well when he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That's the same word here. So essentially, Peter is tying this epistle together. He told us in chapter 1 to be diligent, and here he is doing that again. Be diligent to be found by God in a certain way. And to be found by God in a certain way is also linked to the final judgment when Christ returns. Look a few verses earlier at verse 10. 
Peter says in verse 10 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That word for exposed is is the same word that we see in verse 14, found. The earth and the works that are done on on, on the earth will be exposed and found out. They'll be put on display. They'll be seen for what they really are. Nothing will be hidden from the Lord when he returns. We know that that God knows everything at all times. He is omniscient. But the day of judgment is the time when all of this will be unveiled or uncovered. So that word exposed literally means found. And he's saying, Peter is telling us to be diligent to be found by him in a certain way. When he returns, make sure you are ready. When he returns... Make sure you are able to give an account. When he returns, make sure you're able to stand before him with a clear conscience. That's what Peter's exhorting us to do. I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but when I was in school um, and we were in class, maybe we were feeling like we're just not up to doing work today. Um, And the teacher has to run some errand or the teacher next door comes to speak to them. And so the teacher heads out the classroom for a little bit. And you get three types of people in the classroom, right? You've got the kids who use this as an opportunity to see how much they can get away with before the teacher returns. See if they can draw something on the board or or put some press stick at the back there or do something with chewing gum or change seats and see if the teacher will notice, right? They get up to as much mischief as possible, at least kids in my school. I'm sure all the schools today are great. And then there there are the kids who are pretty indifferent. Well, I don't really care. I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. And then there are those kids, the sort of goody-two-shoes, who want to be found to be good. When the teacher returns, they'll see that I'm sitting up straight. They'll see that I was working while they were out there. I'm perfectly quiet. And as the teacher walks in, they eye them, you know. So, I mean, we're familiar with this. And, I mean, Peter isn't telling us to be this sort of know-it-all proud student whose righteousness is there just to show other people, hey, look, I'm the teacher's favorite, okay? But Peter is saying that when Jesus comes... We want to be found by him without spot or blemish. So without spot or blemish is is a a very specific phrase that he uses. Yes, it's got overtones of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, saying that we must offer up our lives as living sacrifices unto God. But also turn back one chapter to chapter 2, verse 13, where we read this. Chapter 2, verse 13 Describing these false prophets and teachers, he says that they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes. Those words for blots and blemishes are the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here, saying be without spot or blemish. He is contrasting the way that we should be living with the way that the world is living. It's like he's saying they are filthy and evil. You must therefore be unfilthy and unevil. That's what Peter is saying here. Rather than being impressed by the sinister and cunning wisdom of these false teachers, we are to be so awake to their deception that we know when to distance ourselves. So awake to their corruption that we know when its corrupting influence may influence us. Be diligent in this. Live carefully. But how does the knowledge that Christ will return help us to pursue Holiness. There are so many New Testament texts that speak about pursuing Christ likeness, 
pursuing holiness, putting on Christ and putting off the old man. But how does the knowledge that Christ will return affect change in us in the present? That's what I would like us to explore this morning. How does living in light of the day help us to be diligent in pursuing holiness? I suppose this comes back to those questions I asked earlier. What do you most fear? What do you most long for and hope for? And how does that affect the way that you live in the present? You see, at a very fundamental level, something that Peter is revealing for us through this text is that if we think that the way the world currently is, is the way it will always be, that there is no such thing as change, that God is going to do nothing, then we would have no reason to try anything. We would have no reason to change. If there is no judgment, if the world is essentially just riding on in this, cruising along in this static existence, there'd be no reason to hope. There'd even be no reason to fear because things are just continuing the way they are. We'd become fatalists who believe that there is no ultimate justice, no restoration, no hope. I I learned recently about this this movie that's, I think, come out in the States called Sound of Freedom, which is about, it's a true story about this man who um, essentially left his government job and his wife and six kids to tackle the child trafficking, um, for lack of a better word, market in the world, something that is rampant in the world. He, he began exposing this. But if he had such a belief that there is no such thing as justice, no such thing as righteousness, no such thing as a day when God will finally judge those who have done these things, what do you think would have moved him to action? It would have been a sort of pure social justice, just trying to save as many people as he can, but ultimately God's not going to do anything about this, right? He would be paralyzed. But if, on the contrary, we believe that the way the world is now is not the way it will be forever, then we would start living our lives now in a way that moves us towards that upcoming reality. Just like if we know a car is coming down the road, we start picking up our bags, we're packed and ready to go. To use an illustration from real life, I think many of us can relate to a feeling of disquiet, a feeling of pessimism in our country. When we see the way the economy is going, we see the way that our government is acting, many believe that there is no use in even trying, that the decline of our country is inexorable, it's in a freefall, nothing can be done. And it's interesting to see how that can quite easily produce in us an, an attitude of why even try? Why even try be a good citizen if, if my government's not going to recognize it, if South Africa's eventually never going to change? It's not a surprise when those people harbor feelings of bitterness and resentment. Now, whether those people are correct, whether that's a correct assessment of our country is besides the point. God doesn't promise us that we will have a prosperous economy. God doesn't prosper us that South Africa will be a Christian nation, although we pray that that would be the case. But what we do know is that he has promised to bring bring justice on unrighteousness and justice and vindication for his believers. The application here is that God has promised that the the way the world is now is not the way it's going to be forever. Things aren't going to continue as they have since creation And what is God going to do? He is going to reveal the works that are done on earth. He's going to expose them. The things we say, the feelings we entertain, 
the attitudes we hold, the arguments we create, the money we spend, the conversations and friendships that we have, the books we read, the way we live, all of that will be seen by God. If that does not produce a desire for holiness, if that does not produce a desire for Christ-likeness, what will? Knowing that Christ is coming and he will see. It's easy to hide so many things that we do. It's easy to hide so many sins, but there will come a time when nothing can be hidden. Our pursuit of holiness has real lasting consequences because we are headed to a new heavens and a new earth. To quote the, the, the movie Gladiator, what does he say? He says, what we do in life echoes into eternity. Maybe he's trying to get towards the truth of Christianity there, we don't know. But ultimately, what Peter is telling us is that there is consequence to the way we live. There are consequences to the way we live. And this should give weight to the decisions we make. Asking ourselves, will doing this thing be easy to give an account for when Christ returns? When I'm about to have this conversation with this colleague or with this friend or this church member, is this something I'm, I'm willing to, with a clear conscience, give an account of to Christ when he returns? That will heavily affect the way that we engage in certain things, our ability to give an account to the Lord. Will I be ashamed to bring this to him? Am I acting out of hope or out of fear? Am I ready to give an account? Those are questions we should be asking ourselves as we are diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Let's live with diligence. Let's live with care and be conscientious in our pursuit of holiness. To put this in technical terms, our ethics should be defined by our eschatology. But to put it in applicable terms, our actions should be defined by God's promises. After all, that's what Peter wants us to get here. He wants us to remember truth, remember the precious and very great promises of God, stand on those promises, and live in light of those promises. That's what Second Peter's all about. That's what's being granted by his divine power. That's what is more than enough. That's what Peter wants us to be awake to and to remember. And that's what the false teachers would have us not believe, and so rather cave into worldly passions. So in order for us to expect the unexpected, let us pursue holiness and be found by Christ in a way that glorifies him. That's what we learn in verse 14. And we also learn that in verse 17, as, as Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that God is bringing this judgment, take care or be diligent that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own Stability. So in verses 14 and 17, we see this pursuit of holiness in light of the coming day of the Lord. So that's the first action that Peter would have us do as we expect the unexpected. But the second action he'd have us do is to consider Scripture. We see this in verses 15 and 16. In verses 15 and 16, Peter takes a sort of detour from his main trajectory, from his main imperative, and he tells us to count or consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So by referring to Paul and his writings, he's essentially telling us to consider Scripture. He's saying, consider the patience of the Lord in this way, 
and consider it by looking to the scriptures. See how our brother Paul is not saying anything different to what I'm telling you. Consider the scriptures. Consider what has been written about the patience of the Lord in other writings. And consider that God has given time for repentance. That's a kindness. The fact that when we sin, God doesn't judge us like this, but he's given us time for repentance. While we're living in the present and expecting the unexpected, consider the fact that God's patience is really an opportunity for repentance and salvation. In our own lives, but also in the lives of people all around the world who don't know Jesus. Listen to the way this one commentator summarizes this. He says, So this is how one is to think about the long wait that the church has endured with respect to the return of Christ. It is salvation. Salvation for many of those whom Peter addresses who had recently come to repentance. Salvation for the millions of followers of Jesus who have lived throughout the ages. And salvation for peoples around the world about whom our author is not even dimly aware, but whom we know have come to repentance and thus will not perish. People living from the southernmost tip of South America to the Arctic Circle and from the east coast of China right around to the west coast of the United States. And especially in our age, we remember the millions of believers in the global south since the average believer today is not Caucasian or Western, but black or otherwise colored, and probably living in the southern hemisphere, as we are, far beyond the worldview of our author. But this is what our Lord's patience has meant. It has meant that salvation has reached them, and it has meant that salvation has reached us. That's how we should consider the patience of the Lord. The patience of the Lord is an opportunity for salvation to us. That's how this supposed delay in the return of Christ should be viewed. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to repent. It's an opportunity for the nations to repent. It's an opportunity for evangelism. It's an opportunity for missions. And this should give impetus to the mission of the church. That so long as God is holding out, so long as God is exercising his kindness and his graciousness and not judging us immediately for our sin, there is time for salvation. It gives impetus to our lives. This is how we should consider God's patience. And as we said, Peter now points us in the direction of Paul's writings. He doesn't just give us his teaching. He brings in Paul almost out of, the, out of the wing of the stage. And we're saying, hey, how did Paul reach one of these epistles? What is Paul doing here? We don't exactly know what text Peter is referring to. He doesn't give a cross-reference. There weren't chapter and verse numbers, unfortunately, for Peter to refer to. But what this teaches us is that very early on in the church, not later by some Roman Catholic council or something, but very early on, the apostles considered the writings of the other apostles as Scripture. It's not as though only the Old Testament is Scripture, but all of the Bible, everything that is written by Jesus and his apostles is Scripture, and we should be considering it. So this is the point Peter's been making from the very beginning. We have the precious and very great promises of God, to which we will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. When you're in a dark room, when the power's just gone out, you don't have solar, you've just got a candle or a light, you're going to read a little bit closer to that light. You're going to consider where the torch is and go a little bit closer there. Look to Paul's writings. He's telling you to consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. So study what he has told you. Take it to heart. 
And the reason we must study the scriptures and not merely read them is because there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And many of us go, amen. (laughs) I'm not the only one who, when reading Romans, I have to scratch my head and say, sure, I'm not quite sure I'm following what Paul is saying here. But Peter is saying that the ignorant and unstable, they twist this to their own destruction. So we learn at least two things from the consideration of Paul's writings that Peter is pointing us to. First of all, studying scripture, studying theology should be practical. Studying theology is practical. Studying scripture is the most practical thing you could do because it gives us a job to do. It spurs us on for the mission. The command here, after all, is sandwiched between these two imperatives to be diligent and to take care, to live a certain way, and therefore, he says, consider the scriptures. Consider the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our brother Paul wrote to you. Knowing what we've learned from the scriptures ought to help us to guard the way that we walk. So therefore, studying theology should be practical, or at least the result of studying theology should be transformed lives. The Bible doesn't know anything of an ivory tower academician who studies the Bible but doesn't have a transformed life. That is dead theology. We, we, we should stop contrasting theology with faithful living. Because such theology would not be true theology. If it is Godwards, if it is Christ-centered, if it is focused on the source of life, how can that not produce Christ-likeness? How can that not produce a desire for godliness? Jesus didn't come to establish a university. He came to create a new people, a people whose hearts are transformed by his life and teachings. So if in your reading of Scripture, if in your devotions, you find yourself regularly and routinely unchanged, that should give you pause. Why am I unchanged by the writings of Scripture? Do I have a tendency to approach this in a purely academic way? Is my heart so hardened and callous to sin that I'm unable to even see when God is challenging me from His Word? When we study Scripture, we should ask that it helps us to be diligent in pursuing holiness. That should be the goal of reading the Bible and studying Scripture. So that's the first thing we learn from this, that studying Scripture is practical. But secondly, studying Scripture guards us from error. And not just error as in wrong ways of thinking, but also wrong ways of living. So it's like two sides of the same coin. It guards us from ideologies which are sinful ideologies which dehumanize and deface the image of Christ. I think we all know that there are more heresies and misleading teachings out there than there are enough hours to engage with them. Just look on YouTube or Google or Instagram or whatever. Everyone's got their own interpretation, and everyone's got some weird and wonderful new interpretation of Scripture. There's a lot that we've got to be on guard against in the world. And the way that we can be on guard is by knowing Scripture. Not necessarily by studying each and every heresy out there, although there's value in that, to be aware of what's out there. But so knowing the Scriptures, being so well acquainted with them, that when someone departs from them, it's easy to see where they've gone wrong. Again, not in a sort of proud, arrogant way, but in a way that that guards our hearts. A few men and I are reading through Disciplines of a Godly Man, which... It's an excellent book. I must encourage every man to read that book. And we recently discussed the discipline of church in the life 
of the believer. We discussed the fact that many people, and ourselves included, had no idea how important the church is in the life of the Christian until someone just taught us. It's not as though we were intentionally um, disregarding the church. But when someone came to us and said, look, this is actually what the Bible says about the church, then we were guarded from that unhelpful way of thinking. I mean, it's a simple example. But I was just so surprised that many of us, we just simply didn't know what the Scriptures taught. And so we weren't guarded from error. The church and we as individuals need the Scriptures to guard our minds and our hearts, lest we fall and lose our own stability. So that's how Scripture can protect us from error and guard us. So as we expect the return of the king, as we expect the unexpected, let us be well acquainted with the teachings of the one whom we are expecting to return. So that's the second action that Peter gives us, that we ought to consider scripture. But then finally, as we conclude, as Peter concludes, we are to grow in Christ. That's the third and final action. We should expect growth in Christ. You see this just there in verse 18, such that as we expect the unexpected, Peter tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter concludes this section. He concludes, in fact, his entire epistle by focusing on the most important thing once again. When I was, when I was teaching music, I would often um, end my music lessons by reminding my student what they had to do for homework say, yes, practice that song and, and practice this. But I'd always round it off by saying, but remember, what, whatever you do, practice with a metronome. I'd always give them the main thing. Or whatever you do, make sure you practice your scales and do it with a metronome. And Peter, in a sense, is doing that kind of thing now. He's given us all these exhortations, and now he's honing in on the reason for all of this, the impetus for all of this, and that's Christ-likeness. If we have had tried to live holy lives and study the scriptures without growing in Christ, without knowing Christ, without growing in our love for him, then all of this would be vain. Having a correct eschatology and having lives that desire holiness and are diligent in that regard, but are not focused on Christ, that would not be a Christian endeavor. And that's why Peter is rounding off this letter in this way. There should be a longing to be with Christ, a longing to know him. So Peter says that, we, that as we are longing for him, as we are living in light of the day, let us grow in grace and knowledge. First of all, growing in grace means becoming more dependent on God's forgiveness. That's the sign of a mature believer, a dependence on God's grace. It's easy for us to think that becoming a mature Christian is someone who's able to rattle off all these Christian truths or is able to memorize large sections of Scripture or is squeaky clean and at church all the time involved in every single ministry. But for Paul, growth means growth in grace. This understanding and appreciation that I am a sinner in need of salvation. Every day, that's what I need. And that grace only becomes more precious to us as we live our lives. That's the sign of a mature Christian. In fact, it's a sign that someone is being destabilized in their faith when there is an increase in pride and a relegation of the the doctrine of the gospel to the sidelines, that they think that it's something other than the gospel that matures them. But Paul is saying here that we must be growing in 
grace and the gospel grace, an appreciation for the gospel, that only by Jesus' death and his resurrection will we stand. So he tells us to grow in grace, and he tells us to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. This means to deepen our relationship with the Lord. Again, not just in the sense of some detached, lifeless theology, but to grow in our intimacy with him. In the way that if we have a relationship with someone, if we would want to foster that, we want to foster it by getting to know them more deeply, because that brings intimacy in the relationship. And in the same way, we shouldn't be content with merely knowing about Jesus, knowing about God, but as J.I. Packer says, we should want to know God. We should want to know Christ, to have a deep relationship with him. So that's how Peter concludes Second Peter. And I, I hope that with Peter's emphasis on the promises of God, we will come away with a deeper appreciation for what has been provided for us to live lives of godliness, the word of God, the scriptures, the precious and very great promises of God. And in this way, by growing in Christ, by expecting the unexpected, let us do that in light of the day. Let us pursue holiness, considering the scriptures and growing in Christ, so that in that way Jesus will be glorified both now and to the end of the ages, to the day of eternity, which is how Peter concludes, to, all, to which all God's people say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray the prayer that has been prayed by your saints down through the centuries, that you would come, Lord, that you would bring judgment on the wickedness, the corruption, the unrighteousness, the evil, and the sin in this world. And I pray that as we expect that day, as we wait for that day, that we would want to be found in Christ, that we would want to be found in the righteousness that you bestow through the gospel. For if we rely on our own righteousness and our own works, we will not stand. So, Lord, may we be found as holy and blameless as we are seen as covered in the blood of the Lamb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.